You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at agonet slash talks. Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here at the AGO and I am delighted this evening to welcome Norman Clayblatt for a talk on abstract expressionism, which I know many of you are very keen to hear. So, the battle of the Bergs, the struggle, the struggle for meaning of abstract expressionism. Norman L. Clayblatt is Susan and L.E.U. Rose Chief Curator of the Jewish Museum in New York. Mr. Clayblatt recently organized the award-winning Action Abstraction, Pollock de Kooning and American Art, 1940 to 1976, and he'll be talking about that tonight. And that was at the Jewish Museum, the St. Louis Art Museum, Albright Knox Art Gallery, 2008 to 2009. And it'll be interesting to see how that is different from what we have upstairs. He also organized Theatres of Memory, Art in the Holocaust, 2008. Drawn from the collections of the Jewish Museum, Theatres of Memory explored the contradictory nature of the theatrical impulse of contemporary art related to the Holocaust. His other exhibitions include The Dreyfus Affair, Art, Truth and Justice, 1987, Too Jewish, question mark, 1996, Challenging Traditional Identities, 1996, and John Singer Sargent, Portraits of the Wertheimer Family, 2000. Clayblatt also co-curator, was also co-curator for an expressionist in Paris, the paintings of Haim Soutine, 1998, and Painting a Place in America, Jewish Artists in New York, 1945, in 1991. His articles have appeared in Art in America, Art Forum, Art Journal, and Art News, and he has been honored with support from the Getty Research Institute, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Rockefeller Foundation. Mr. Clayback currently serves on the boards of the Vera List Center for Art and Politics of the New School and the U.S. chapter of the International Association of Art Critics. So I welcome Mr. Clayback. Well, um, it's great to be in Toronto and Thank you and the AGO staff and my friends in Toronto for um, inviting me, encouraging me to come, and bringing me to see um, the marvelous new architecture and collections of AGO, which I haven't seen in about four years when you were closed to the public. So it's been quite a bit longer since my last perusal through here. So this gives me a wonderful excuse to re-experience this wonderful museum. In any event, um, I'm also pleased, um, in fact, honored to speak on the occasion or in association with the magisterial exhibition of Abstract Expressionist New York that's upstairs in the galleries. Um, as you probably know, there's no collection focused on the movement that is as rich or deep as MoMA's, and no doubt it was MoMA's showcasing of these artists from the 1940s and 50s on that gave them the abstract expressionist movement the moniker, the triumph of American painting. As you can tell from the title of my talk, my focus is going to take off on a different angle. 
from the current display upstairs. My aim is to re-examine the movement in the context of the rivalry between the two major art critics of the time, whose eloquent, if contentious, explanations of what is art and why we should look at it um, shaped the way we have come to understand abstract expressionism and certainly created the basis for our understanding of that movement. These um, two um, opinionated, brash titans, both journalists and critics, were none other than Clement Greenberg and Harold Rosenberg. My theme will re-examine the ideas, as Jason um, Gillian um, mentioned, uh, for an exhibition I organized on um, the abstract expressionist movement in 208, um, precisely called Action Abstraction, Pollock de Kooning in American Art. The show traveled, as um, Gillian mentioned, to St. Louis and the Albright Knox Art Gallery, which is actually pretty close um, and just a touch south, and if I'm correct in my geography, west. Um, I've done the um, pilgrimage between these two institutions many a time by car. What I hope to reveal is how my approach, using Greenberg and Rosenberg's contrasting ideas and artistic preferences as a lever for exhibition organization, uh, will, despite its historical grounding, change the way... Um, the viewer of my exhibition and perhaps um, the audience here sees the possibilities of looking at um, these artists who we've come to so dearly love. In the process, these hangs or arrangements of um, the works on display can offer new synthetic relationships between and among works of art. With the presence of abstract expressionist New York and Toronto, with the current installation of color field paintings at the Guggenheim Bilbao, and with the major focus on abstract expressionism and its continuing artistic legacies in this month's issue of Art Forum, it would appear that energy focused on the movements continued full steam ahead um, in, from its heyday in the post-war years. However, there were interruptions, and these interruptions happened actually quite recently. Though there was always great affection and admiration for the works of the gestural abstractionists Jackson Pollock and Willem de Kooning and the color field approaches of Mark Rothko and Barnett Newman, beginning in the mid-'70s, a virulent critique emerged that interrogated the motives catapulting this cacophonous group of so-called abstract expressionist artist onto the international stage. And I think one of the things you'll know, having read a bit about abstract expressionism in relationship to the exhibition upstairs, is that this was never a very cohesive group. group. As contentious as the critics were, the artists were contentious with each other too. Um, they, um, in any event, so this um, criticism happened in various ways. Um, the artists and their art were criticized for being chauvinist. The language of the criticism was attacked for being colonizing and elitist. Um, abstract expressionist art's use in the service of Cold War politics was surprisingly unmasked. Um, that was in the early 1980s. Questions about the manipulation of so-called canon were cross-examined. And, not least, the omission of women, African-Americans, gays, and lesbians were condemned. Abstract expressionism continued to come under attack well through the 1990s. 
All this provided a great deal of discussion, but often often foreclosed any positive synthetic ways of thinking about or looking at so beloved a movement whose history was in the process of being rewritten. Of course, there were monographic exhibitions um, about the major artist of abstract expressionism. Um, Pollock, Rothko, Newman um, were all given major shows within the last decade. Um, Yet, in 2008, it had been decades since a cohesive exhibition on abstract expressionism had been mounted. By the time I first entered my research phase in 2002, hunting for a new way to present abstract expressionism, um, the writing um, and work on the subject seemed to verge on exhaustion. The initial thrill of the artist's experiments, the movement's major works with their grand gestures and statements had nearly imploded. Was there nothing new to be said? No new way to think about it. It's from this vantage point that I began to look back historically, straining to organize an exhibition around the high-pitched ideological and aesthetic conflicts these two major critics offered the public. Tom Wolfe aptly dubbed this two-party brawl um, with the title of the exhibition that I have um, so graciously stolen, The Battle of the Bergs. So exceptional were Rosenberg and Greenberg's impact on the writing of the period, the way they shaped the dialogues around Abex and selected the specific artist to either champion or despise that Wolf, another cranky, prejudiced, but shrewd cultural critic, proclaimed as early as 1975, and I quote, 25 years from now, I'm willing to predict that in the year 2000, when the Metropolitan or the Museum of Modern Art puts on a great retrospective of American art circa 1945 to 1975, the artist featured, the seminal figures of the era, will not be Pollock and de Kooning, but Greenberg and Rosenberg. (laughs) Discounting Wolf as trivial historically... I failed to read his pithy language until just before I had to meet an editor's deadline for my catalog essay. No, I would not be reinventing the wheel. So, a little background on the critics. Despite their differences, Greenberg and Rosenberg came from similar middle-class New York Jewish backgrounds. They quickly rose to prominence as major New York intellectuals in the early post-war years, a time that we should remember New York intellectual served as code word for Jewish. Greenberg was born in the Bronx to immigrant parents and attended Syracuse University. By the late 1930s, he began to write articles on art, culture, and politics for what was then called the Little Magazines, like Partisan Review and The Nation, Little Magazines because they didn't have um, grand um, readerships, great readerships, but very focused and highly intellectual readerships. And we should remember that the owners of many of those little magazines, especially magazines like Partisan Review, uh, and their editorial staff were mostly Jewish. Greenberg's writings range from general ex- explanations of modern culture to specific definitions of art of the 20th century. 
Rosenberg, also a native New Yorker, attended St. Lawrence University in Brooklyn. No, not the one up near here, but the one in Brooklyn, and, or the one then in Brooklyn, and went at, on to the then acclaimed haven for brilliant immigrant or children of immigrants, City College. He earned a law degree. Early on in the 30s and 40s, Rosenberg wrote for parties and review, poetry view, and from 1966 until his death in 1978, he held the influential position of art critic for the New Yorker magazine. And I hasten to say that the article, the kind of articles he wrote were so much more, so much longer, more intellectual, more theoretical than what we see in the quick two-page criticisms, whether it be pop culture or art or film criticism or music criticism that we see today. You get the two pages really quickly to tell you what to do or not, what to see, what to hear, and what not to hear. Um, these were really intellectual exercises that were um, very, very deeply um, thought out. Um, for two men who became such outright enemies, it's ironic to think that it was Rosenberg who introduced Greenberg to the editors of Partisan Review, where Greenberg published his first major articles. Two of these articles, Avant-Garde and Kitsch of 1939 and Towards a Newer Laocoon of 1940, became the foundations for the consideration of modern aesthetics. And these were Greenberg's articles and their advocacy of rigorous cleansing of anecdote and popular culture from high art and the strict separation of different art media and art forms. More interested in artistic method than result, Harold Rosenberg reported a more general cultural view in his important article of 1940, The Fall of Paris. In it, he signaled the German occupation, that with the German occupation of Paris, the mecca of the art world and its cultural and artistic laboratory was shut down. This was, of course, the city to which cultural aspirants and producers came from far-flung corners of the earth and had been flocking there since the late 19th century. While Greenberg began as art critic for the nation between 1942 and 1949, Rosenberg's ascendance as an art critic began in earnest in 1952 with his December article for Art News titled The American Action Painters. And I think even if, we, if most people don't know the specific title of that article, we know the residue of how we experience gestural painters like especially Pollock and de Kooning would not be thought of the way they are today without that major text. Um, basically, Greenberg advocated a formal approach to art making and viewing with an emphasis on flatness of the picture plane, uh, harmonious interactions of colors and shapes, and increasingly anonymous paint application. His views espoused a purity of form that could elevate painting to a higher sphere above the morass of mundane activities in everyday life. He also believed that modern art evolved as a logical trajectory and continued to refresh itself through the application of his salient objectives. Rosenberg, by contrast, privileged gesture as a liberating force for the artist, valuing the artistic process as an expression of individual, um, individual liberty, personal action that would reveal and communicate new aesthetic truths. And I have to say that action, the idea of action, was something that really came out of existentialism. 
Um, and so it was discussed by people like Jean-Paul Sartre, but also by rabbis like the famous Leo Beck, who were talking about it at the same time. With Rosenberg's ascendance as an art critic in 1952, their aesthetic, ideological, and personal differences precipitated a schism in the art world. Um, the competition rose to such a high degree that many anecdotes exist about having to sequester each man in a different room at art world parties. That is, if you could get them into the same party at the same time. And even the repeated, possibly fatuous story of the fisticuffs and pugilistic threats to one another. So this was, of course, um, the kind of tough male tough guy critic that came out of 30s and 40s literature in an almost mythological sense. They were made um, to create this um, aura and uh, sense of toughness and staking your turf and claim um, in the post-war, Cold War uh, era where America emerged as this place where we were tougher, stronger, more important, and um, we would be teaching the world everything. And so Greenberg and Rosenberg felt they could teach the world what American art was. Um, so in the face of Rosenberg's ascendancy with the 52 Action Painters article, Greenberg, to maintain his power, needed a retort to the action painters. And this resulted in Greenberg's influential article, American Type Painting, which is still read in um, textbooks and college classes today, um, and is an originary uh, explanation of the movement and the masters. Oops. Um, when Rosenberg published his anthology of his writings in late 1959 under the title Tradition of the New, Greenberg rushed his book Art and Culture to press in little more than a year. So there was always this, you do something, I better uh, one-up you. Um, with, with the positive reception of Greenberg's Art and Culture, um, Greenberg went on to attack Rosenberg in 1962 with an article of uh, called How Write, Art Writing Earns a Bad Name. And Rosenberg, of course, countered within a few months action painting a uh, decade of distortion. Was always tit for tat, on guard. You get the gist. The big question for me was how do you create an exhibition um, that can use the two critics as a lever for um, an installation and an installation that I hoped would be worthy and compelling and not least one that would make a, um, a visually seductive experience for the viewer. After much deliberation, and I might add much frustration, there was a moment I told our director that I just couldn't make an exhibition about these two critics that was an art exhibition. Um, and our director said... It's too late. You have to. <laughs> um, not an answer I wanted. Um, my answer um, came in the pairing and grouping of artists that the critics either loved or hated. Um, artists whose work the, each critic could use to explain their position um, or artists who needed help from the critic 
So the critic had to sort of distort their art and fit it, fit the square peg into the round hole. So the exhibition began um, with the classic divide um, between the critics that demonstrated their personal taste, theoretical positions, and personal allegiance, which was played out paradigmatically with um, the Jackson Pollock Willem de Kooning opposition. Greenberg's closeness to and championing of uh, Jackson Pollock versus R- Rosenberg's admiration and friendship for Willem de Kooning. Remarkably, it was in large measure the competition between Pollock and de Kooning and between Rosenberg and Greenberg that positioned these two artists as front runners in the story of abstract expressionism. And although I saw the show um, you have upstairs in uh, New York, I haven't seen the installation here. I would imagine those two guys still play a very big role, at least in launching um, the uh, discussion or the progression of abstract expressionism. Um, the, con- the contrast in their working methods, um, with de Kooning working vertically on a traditional easel and Pollock, I- Pollock's iconoclastic dripping of paint on canvas placed flat on the floor, served as a major point of departure. Two videos featuring the artists in action uh, served as an opening salvo for the exhibition action abstraction. Greenberg, in his writing on Pollock, played up the flatness of the canvas, the more brutal and totally American nature of Pollock's art, and by 1947, that was pretty early, pronounced Pollock the greatest American painter of the 20th century. But inconsistencies, ironies, and paradoxes abound in comparisons of the signature early abstract expressionist work of Pollock and de Kooning. they made strides, and they progressed, and they regressed, um, at least according to the critics. Despite the abstract directions and urges of the two painters and of the whole movement, everyone was so much talking about and trying to become abstract, um, imagery kept recurring Oops, I will learn this in um, the work of both painters. Um, imagery was an anathema, or figuration was an anathema for Greenberg, but defensible for Rosenberg, who counterclaimed de Kooning as the leading American post-war painter whose career defied the notion that art of our time had to be abstract. So, like any good rabbi, um, they could um, cite the scriptures, or their scriptures, in an artist's defense. Um, Though de Kooning at once frustrating and heroic struggle with paint and canvas served Rosenberg as a model for his idea of action painting. It was, in fact, the filmmaker, Hans Namath's images, and I'll go back. Um, The Namath image is on your right, um, that indelibly linked um, Pollock um, contradictorily to um, action painting. So this w- these were the comparisons on one wall of our gallery. Um, two slides from the gallery demonstrate the struggle between Greenberg's um, notion. I think I want to go. Wait a minute. Okay. I'd like you to look at the bottom slide, please. Um, 
the struggle between Greenberg's notion of abstraction versus Rosenberg's notion of action. Each is evidently defensible as explanations, and the two, ma- two masterpieces make the point. De Kooning's Gotham News on the left of the lower slide and Pollock's Convergence on the right. But um, the figurative side of both uh, artists found their way back to the classic canvases of the same period. And here you see Pollock's number nine with this sort of gigantic um, Picassoid um, uh, primitive creature and one of de Kooning's famous women punching their way onto and off of the canvas. Um, But there was also something um, very interesting if you look at... Um, a painting that hung across from Pollock's number nine. Can you can you hear me? Am I talking too much to the um, slide screen? <laughs> okay. Um, how incredibly similar in composition these two works that um, one abstract by de Kooning and one representational by Pollock look just in formal terms but the critics weren't talking about formal issues at the time. They were talking about abstraction and representation. Okay, so sometimes an artist, in order to get back in the good graces of a critic, had to um, paint the kind of paintings the critic wanted. And um, I firmly believe that this was the case with Pollock's convergence of... um, a canvas of 1952. Pollock had sort of stopped painting the large drip paintings um, in the early 50s and was doing the kind of black and white work like number nine that you just saw. Um, But he wanted, and Greenberg was losing faith, losing interest, and he needed to win Greenberg back. He needed to be the greatest American painter and he needed Greenberg to to crown him thus. so um, Pollock um, Convergence is a later drip painting that addresses um, Pollock's um, disinterest in the two-year spate of smaller-scaled works done predominantly in black and white, as well as one of Greenberg's earlier criticisms, even when he was pl- applauding um, Pollock, that um, Pollock was a little... Um, timid when it comes to color, and of course Greenberg loved um, color and opticality, which are words that um, are always linked with the critics' uh, theory of modernism. Convergence is a wild explosion of high-key paint. Bright orange, clear blue, sulfurous yellows. It's also a return in 1952 to the skeins of paint that characterized Pollock strip paintings. Um, but looking closely, and I ask you to look at the left edge of the picture of Convergence, um, what you see are similar black and white figures or creatures, as I call them, um, that Pollock did to prime himself and the canvas so that he could then go about doing his drip technique on what was essentially a figurative ground on or even obliterating that figurative ground. Um, 
So at a time when Greenberg was losing interest in the greatest living American painter, this was Pollock's scream for attention. This is the second gallery of action abstraction. The Greenberg-Pollock-Rosenberg-De Kooning divide became paradigmatic of the sharp differences between the two critics' tastes and interpretations. Much of the public narrative, published narrative and the critics' continuing arguments with one another underlie the reality of today's perception of this great divide. Seemingly, if Greenberg liked an artist, Rosenberg couldn't like them. But that was not the case with Arshiel Gorky and um, Hans Hoffmann. In fact, um, both Rosenberg and Greenberg loved both artists and both wrote extensively on them um, and championed them. Um, uh, both Gorky and Hoffman were immigrants to the United States, raised in the Armenian countryside. Gorky arrived as a teenager, a generational older. Hoffman came as a mature painter with a deep understanding of Cubism, Fauvism, and German Expressionism, and had participated in the avant-garde movements in Germany. Hoffman's Provincetown house and Gorky's garden in the Sochi um, both from around 1940, were among the earliest works in the show. And both, um, much against what critics like as originality, showed European influences. In Gorky's case, it was the influence of Miro and Picasso. In Hoffman's case, it was the influence of Kandinsky and the German Expressionists. Um, wet, while Greenberg was suspicious of uh, Gorky's dependence on the old other masters or modern masters, Greenberg nevertheless saw Gorky as one of the greatest artists in this country. Rosenberg, by contrast, developed a theory to explain why Gorky was looking at the master, the early master's work, and actually why he was working on it his way through imitating their stylistic and coloristic functions. And um, he called um, Gorky's admiration and appropriation, we would call it today, of the masters as a way in which the artist converted European sensibility into his own American idiom. Um, so having... Studied with Hoffman in the late 30s, Greenberg acknowledged the artist's critical influence on his own thinking. Hoffman's well-known teaching of the concept of push and pull is evident in both the color and facture and the way um, the blocks of color are applied to the canvas. You can almost feel them fighting each other but creating a harmony at the same time. Um, and here is a juxtaposition of... of Early American work of Hoffman, uh, Fantasia, um, it's not Fantasia. Hoffman was German, and he would not have even been able to pronounce um, a Walt Disney character. <laughs> um, and Sanctum Sanctorum, um, which is a late um, classic um, block-like work. For Rosenberg, um, Hoffman's import lay in his belief in the creative principle, and he praised Hoffman's innovation as a 
artist and teacher, and Hoffman, the Hoffman School was incredibly important to the emerging abstract expressionists, and many artists, including Pollock and Lee Krasner, studied there, or studied with him. Um, and now I want to look at a close-up of Fantasia, um, which you just glimpsed in the previous slide. This is an evident homage underneath to the abstraction to the um, non-literal, um, non, non, uh, almost non-objective abstraction of Kandinsky. And then you see the white squiggles sitting on top of this expressionist paint surface. And Hoffman did this in his way of a push and pull between how he was going to deal with keeping the surface, the painting flat, and yet creating... A, a number of elements that fought with one another purposefully. Um, but he so he applied the loopy lines to finish this picture. And uh, these loopy lines, these white squiggles, were created with an Elmer's glue medium, um, early Elmer's glue. Um, we're talking 1943. Um, and this work is considered the first drip painting because Hoffman did this in the kind of drip gesture, and one wonders if Pollock might have gotten the idea and then, of course, taken it way, way further. Um, so uh, quite interesting that a European artist would have for created the first authentic drip painting four years before Pollock. Um, Gorky's restrained and highly nuanced picture, and I believe it should be upstairs, The Diary of a Seducer, was one of the great surprises awaiting a comparison within the Greenberg and Rosenberg literature. Who would have thought that two such rival um, argumentative critics writing at different moments would agree, um, they didn't, think they agreed at the time, they each pronounced that the Diary of, Sedu of a Seducer was indubitably Gorky's masterpiece. So here you have Pollock and de Kooning, who were the exemplars of the rivalry and the division, and Gorky and Hoffman, for whom the two critics uh, turned somersaults to try to justify why each one should be in his camp. Um, as I, prepa I prepared a checklist of possible works to feature in the conceptual plan according to this Rosenberg-Greenberg competition, and I continued to plumb their writings as well as the critiques of each man's work, but it quickly became clear that there were serious omissions in the canons that Greenberg and Rosenberg established how to compensate for such oversights. That became one of the thorniest questions for the action abstraction exhibition to address. After all, it was an exhibition about the critics. I wanted it to be their voices that um, created the juxtapositions, but we had to acknowledge that women, um, African-Americans, gays and lesbians were not included in their um, early discussions of the movement. And it's interesting because the roster of abstract expressionist artists had already included many outsiders, among them immigrant Greek, Russians, Armenians, and certainly Jews, and showed the influence of non-Western art, such as Native American and African works. The two critics often disregarded minority artists. 
paragmatic among what I called this gallery blind spots were the painters Lee Krasner, um, a Jewish woman, Grace Hardigan, and Norman Lewis, an African-American. And, the ki- and that's not that these people, these, these artists didn't have any truck with the critics. They didn't give them the time, much of the time of day. And there's one wonderful anecdote in um, a Grace Hardigan interview that talks about an early 50s visit from um, Clement Greenberg to her studio in which he told her that she was doing everything wrong, that if she didn't turn to pure abstraction, she would be up the river and, it would, you know, forget her career. And she was so furious when he left her apartment. She bolted the door, took all the ki- china out of her kitchen cabinets. It was probably very modest china for uh, artists living in mostly cold water flats and threw them on the floor <laughs> and crashed them. So that was the, um, you get the sense of the power that was wielded by these critics early on. Krasner's painting, um, Blue and Black, um, with its unusual color scheme, its merger of restrained color and bold forms, and its understanding of the importance of mural scales, demonstrated that a formidable talent had just matured. Krasner was doubly marginalized as a woman and as the wife of Jackson Pollock, whose career she tirelessly promoted, sometimes to the detriment of her own. Uh, Despite Krasner's close personal relationship with Greenberg and Rosenberg, neither critic paid any attention to her first solo show um, in 1951 at the Betty Parsons Gallery. Krasner was a student of Hoffman, and she was actually the person who introduced Greenberg to Hoffman's school, but she also introduced Greenberg to Pollock. Um, And when Greenberg was losing... um, interest in Pollock, she started to lobby Rosenberg, a neighbor of hers in the Springs and the east end of Long Island, um, to try to drum up interest for her husband. Um, But Rosenberg, who never warmed to Pollock, flatly refused. Um, I think you saw in the previous gallery these two not very legible pictures that I'm going to show you in a legible manner now. Krasner's pictograph, Untitled, of 1948, was already proof of her originality in mining one of the serious strategies of the 1940s that was used by many artists of the time, and this was the pictograph. She clearly interpreted the pictograph in a personal and highly original way. Um, African-American painter Uh, Norman Lewis engaged in a similar approach to the pictographic, evident in this Twilight Sounds. Other artists, such as Barnett Newman and Adolf Gottlieb, were also well known for using this Jungian concept of the pictographic image, and you have to remember that many of the abstract expressionist artists were in Jungian therapy at the time, um, plumbed the idea of the pictograph for its free association for its psychological aspects. Following Jung, artists like Gottlieb, who's perhaps the most famous 
pictographer, if you'll allow me, um, claimed that these images were brought forth from the unconscious as proof of a universal nature of man. It's therefore fascinating that the pictographic images excavated by a woman, a Jewish woman, and an African-American would be much more culturally specific. The tangled form of Lewis's Twilight Sounds of 1947 draw on the creativity and spontaneity of jazz and on the patterns of African textiles. That's a very culturally specific reading of a pictographic image. Abstraction here is evocative of the rhythms and active and noisy figural movements. Krasner's Untitled of 1948 was part of her little image paintings made from the late 1940s up until 1951. Um, The abstract elements which resemble letters and symbols suggest Hebrew characters or ancient writing. According to the artist, Krasner worked on the little image paintings from right to left, consistent with Hebrew writing, which she had learned as a child. In organizing an exhibition which delved into historical position and period perceptions, um, we felt it was important to include several spaces where we could learn how the abstract expressionism was received by the public. So we had a lot of posters, letters, um, uh, archival notes, um, magazines that were promoting, um, that were art magazines or general magazines promoting the new art, um, where you could hear and and even um, f- short film clips where you could hear and see the critics' views on videotape, engage in the battles of the magazines, and uh, see the posters in which the gallerists and critics stake their claims. All these supported and presented artists and groups to collectors, curators, and the public. The photo of the Irascibles, a group of major abstract expressionists um, who picketed a conservative American art exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum in 1950, the famous Life magazine that boldly um, questioned Greenberg's claim for Pollock's prominence, and art used as a background for fashion shoots shows how quickly um, this group became public property. Sculpture was a complex issue for both Greenberg and Rosenberg and by extension for abstract expressionism. And I would imagine, much as at MoMA, there's very little sculpture in the galleries upstairs right now. And I will see the show tomorrow, um, um, looking greatly forward. It was clearly um, that sculpture was secondary to painting in ABEX um, because painting was ABEX's preferred Um, even assumed medium. Neither Greenberg's theory of formalism with its emphasis on flatness nor Rosenberg's concept of action as a creative force could conform to sculpture's three-dimension and unwieldy or unyielding materials. The installation in the gallery that we called Sculpture's Problematic Dimension displayed works by the major sculptors who, like Pollock, de Kooning, Gorky, and Krasner, were beginning to move their work out of the surrealism and into a more expressive, universal, and abstract American vocabulary. Whether it's David Smith's um, The Hero of 1952, Herbert Ferber's Serrational Zeus of 1947, David Hare's Windows on the Moon, which was bought by Peggy Guggenheim when she showed Hare in um, her American um, 
I'm blanking on the uh, American uh, play, American Century. There's the American Place Gallery, which was earlier. <laughs> um, Gorky and Krasner were beginning to move their work. Um, in any event, we see it's fascinating to see that as with Pollock and de Kooning, figurative elements remain encoded in these works. Um, and I might add that many of the sculptors in particular were grappling with um, aspects of existentialism, which was, of course, a very, very important philosophical movement at the time, and um, also very important in the wake of Hiroshima and the Holocaust. For Rosenberg, the work of David Hare, also championed by Jean-Paul Sartre, um, with its suggestion of myth and the unconscious embodied a symbiosis of surrealism and American sensibility. And you'll see the language is always, they're always trying to overlay American because American had to be separated out and celebrated. This was comparable with the 1940s and early 1950s painting of Pollock and Barnett Newman and others. Now, um, also sculptors wanted to be using some of the same language as painters and so action as a liberating means of personal expression exerted a p powerful pull on many of the abstract expressionist sculptors. Ferber emphasized the creative progress, and if you'll forgive the reproduction, which isn't as bad as the first one I had, had himself photographed in an action pose as assembling one of his sculptures in 1951, only a few months after Hans Namath's famous photos and film of Pollock in action, which you saw before. Greenberg saw promise in American sculpture and also um, heralded early on the work of Lassau, Ferber, Lipton, and David Smith. Um, and his interest reflected his criteria for modern painting, truth to materials, the use of modern media, and the avoidance of naturalism and illusion. Ultimately, Greenberg ended up losing all interest in any other major abstract expressionist sculptors save David Smith. Contradictions abounded in both Rosenberg and Greenberg's theory and practice. Greenberg's analysis of Smith's black, white, and, and here you see another view of that sculpture gallery, and let's look at black, white, and forward, which we'll see a couple of times. Um, one would assume that Greenberg would have hated the painted surface of this sculpture. Um, because it violated his theories for the separation of different media. Sculpture was not supposed to be painted. It was supposed to be about lapidary, hard, steel, um, impenetrable materials. Um, Greenberg, but Greenberg claimed that black, white, and forward, um, and I quote, the pictorial and the sculptural seem to transcend themselves into a new kind of unified medium. Um, a kind of statement you wouldn't expect from um, the formalist critic. Ult ultimately, um, Greenberg championed David Smith as the exceptional figure, and for him, the only figure um, sculptor on par with Jackson Pollock. And it was always Pollock that was the artist for Greenberg in which you weighed everyone else um, by comparison. As you can see, uh, the Smith sculpture is the linchpin between the sculpture galleries and a gallery called the Sublime and Self-Reflexive, which includes the work of Clifford Still, Ed Reinhardt, and Mark Rothko, and sets the stage for 
a gallery, uh, which you'll see is more like a chapel to Barnett Newman. The idiosyncratic temperaments of Still, Reinhardt, and Rothko, their evolving styles, their conflicting ideologies, challenge both Greenberg and Rosenberg's position. And um, it's very interesting that um, Rosenberg, for example, critiqued Rothko in a 1948 studio visit and did not write about Rothko again till Rothko died in 1970, where he writes one of the most beautiful obituary analysis of Mark Rothko um, for The New Yorker. And it's a, it's, a be- it's a marvelous piece to read, but part of the truck between a critic and an artist is also this kind of personal um, connection that was probably not that easy with a small cadre of artists and very, very hot-tempered people trying to stake a new claim for um, their positions and their positions as American artists. Um, So what I mostly want to look at is I was watching abstract expressionism paintings move from the early 1950s from highly colored um, canvases to darker, much more minimal canvases, the likes of which you see with the Rothko and the Reinhardt in the corner. Um, Still had a very interesting... Um, connection with critics and wrote to them frequently. And one very amazing incident is a letter that um, still was a wonderful thinker and writer, wrote to Harold Rosenberg in 1950 um, and complimented Rosenberg on his um, remarkable keen abilities and acute abilities to analyze literature and politics. So impressed was the artist with the critic's insight and reasoning that he encouraged Rosenberg to try his hand writing about art, assuming that Rosenberg could transfer his critical insights from the literary to the artistic. Inspired by Still's encouragement, as well as his longstanding friendships with many of the Apex artists, Rosenberg worked over a long period of time conceiving, editing, and pitching his American action painters, to a number of magazines. And, of course, it ultimately appeared in Art News in 1952, but was supposed to have appeared in France first at In Les Temps Modernes. Still wasted no time in responding to that um, famous piece of writing. And his cranky response, the artist called Rosenberg sophomoric, filled with psychological error, and lacking in familiarity with the most common data of contemporary culture. Such brass, brash behavior was very typical for Clifford Still, who ignored and fought with critics, often refused to sell works to major collectors and museums, and when he did, he often tried to keep strings attached. So there are some stills in public collections that cannot be borrowed out of the institutions. Try doing a still show. It's nearly impossible. In any event, this one of our galleries dealt um, very importantly with this um, lower keying of of palette that almost seemed to go hand-in-hand with the emergence of 
um, a more min- minimalist approach and monochromatic approach to painting. Um, on uh, Reinhardt's black paintings are a great example of how um, the artist made a tautology of the Greenbergian principles. His subtly moder- modulated color, his extremely thin painted surfaces, his overall composition and optical effects seemed on the one hand to echo Greenberg's formalist ideals. However, Reinhardt's later paintings drained of physical presence of paint, um, tactility and color, his search for an absolute or an endpoint of painting were totally antithetical to Greenberg's theories. And if anything, Reinhardt's minimal yet still perceptual pictures and his belief that the work could lead to an endpoint in painting um, were things that Greenberg wouldn't touch. But let's look once again at um, Black, White, and Forward and see how that moves to this um, monolith by Barnett Newman. And I don't have an individual picture of that, but Barnett Newman marked the dead center of the installation, his ideas being foundational to the development of abstract expressionism. And he was cleverly able to navigate between the admiration and explanations of the import of his work between the two competing critics. And really, Greenberg and Rosenberg both loved Newman, and for very different reasons. This is this little chapel we created. And let's look at uh, Wonment and Genesis, the break. The monstrosity of World War II and the Holocaust deepened Newman's questioning of modern painting and gave him a sense of a need for urgent new beginnings. Genesis the break um, heralds this and is an exemplar of this tendency, evoking the biblical triumph of light over darkness and um, seen by Rosenberg as, quote, a prelude to renewal, to acts of origination modeled on the book of Genesis. Needless to say, Newman's bare, nearly monochromatic canvases like Onement, um, with it punctuated by minimal strips, um, left many viewers perplexed. For this reason, Newman was the last major painter among the abstract expressionists to become accepted um, into the cadre of its key practitioners. Um, Rosenberg recognized Newman's paintings for their aesthetic, philosophical, and spiritual quality, and very much Newman, who was a great writer himself, um, also explained the metaphysical uh, meaning of his pictures. Um, And that coalesced very um, happily with Rosenberg's thinking. But for Greenberg, Newman's use of color, scale, and reductive form was a vital element in the new style of abstraction um, that pointed the way beyond the easel picture. And um, after criticizing the artists concerned with metaphysical content in reviewing a 1947 Newman show at the Betty Parsons Gallery, Greenberg came to see Newman, um, defending him in his essay on American-type painting. And of course, like so many of the key figures of abstract expressionism that, Newman, that Greenberg liked, Newman became um, the successor to Pollock. 
um, typically what Greenberg challenged in Newman's art, Rosenberg extolled. And Rosenberg actually was the one who wrote the first monograph on Newman. Um, and I would actually rather you look at white and hot, which is this um, red larger canvas in the gallery, um, and look very closely at the kind of light that's emanated in the gallery. The walls of the gallery almost look red. They're, they're white walls. They look so red because of the way that um, Newman's um, white and hot um, radiates light and radiates colored light. But there's also almost a trompe l'oeil at play in the swath of white strips at the left and right that play perceptual games with the assumed white of the gallery walls. Um, the intense red radiates off the canvas, and um, Newman forces the viewers to feel that they're actually part of the painting, that you're entering the space of the painting standing in front of that work. Um, and in this case, one is clearly bathed by the intense reflections of the painting's crimson light. And even if you look at Genesis, the break in that gallery, you see it has reflections of red laid out on it. So this is a painting that starts to control its environment. It's really remarkable. It's almost dangerous to hang something too close to it. Around 1950... Um, Clement Greenberg introduced Helen Frankenthaler to Jackson Pollock and Lee Krasner, drawing inspiration from Pollock's ambitious scale and revolutionary technique. Frankenthaler began pouring diluted paint onto unprimed canvas. The color spread, merging with the support um, into monumental effects of surprising freshness. Mountains and Sea is a major work and is considered the first color field painting. Likewise, during time Greenberg spent in London, he met the um, sculptor Anthony Caro, um, then working in a figural mode with traditional materials of bronze, stone, and clay. His discussion of, with Greenberg um, at the time made him within 24 hours, and that's why the t sculpture is called 24 hours, an abstract sculptor. He was so influenced by Greenberg. So in these two cases, you can see how Greenberg influ radically, radically influenced how art was made and how new ideas about art were actually invented. Um, in any event, um, Frankenthaler's large painting, done when she was merely 24 years old, became legendary. And Greenberg encouraged artists to go see this game changer of a picture. The formalist critic arranged for Morris Lewis and Kenneth Nolan to visit Frankenthaler's studio. And at the time, um, Greenberg was dating um, Frankenthaler and had the keys to her studio and actually was supposed to have taken um, Lewis and Nolan to the studio while Helen was out of town. Um, and that gets a bit of critique in the feminist camp of um, writing. Um, in any event, they were so inspired by, by Frankenthaler's color f new stain painting that um, Morris Lewis actually spent two years trying to pour paint 
In his case, he even worked with Leonard Bocourt to develop a new kind of paint, Magnacolor, to, that would pour more thinly and um, handle more easily than oil paint um, to come up with these wonderful um, early veil paintings. And the paintings are supposed to be entirely poured, and yet when I took a very dear friend of mine who was head of conservation at the National Gallery in Washington to look at the Lewis, she said, there's charcoal on that painting. So, he, so it's quite interesting to note that Lewis actually strengthened the contrast by using charcoal um, to take his... Um, poor technique, which of course comes out of the Pollock strip technique, but to make it to make the image stronger, something that's probably a no-no in um, Greenberg's vocabulary. But um, the last two um, in this gallery I ask you to look at is this view of um, Jules Olitsky's um, wonderful Dulma and um, and Truitt's uh, monolithic uh, painted sculpture. Um, Olitsky's radical departure happened not by pouring or by centrifugally um, throwing paint like Nolan did, but by using a, an ordinary um, commercial paint sprayer to spray paint into onto the canvas to get these incredibly evanescent veils of different colors of paint. And he's still hearkening to Greenberg, who had to always have the edges of the canvas confirmed, made sure that you would know where the, um, for the rectangularity of the canvas began and ended. Um, but what I love about Olitsky is that he actually said that ideally he would be able to paint on thin air with his spray, paint, spray painting. Um, but um, um, Antruitt's painted monoliths are also were very uh, strongly championed by Greenberg, and he wrote about her um, a bit. Um, and so they are these Greenbergian um, uh, sculptures that are also now seen as pre precedents for minimal sculpture. Um, but when you think that this movement of this uh, critic that's always, Greenberg has always been criticized as a male chauvinist, um, critic ignoring women, ignoring um, anyone but a, this few these few people he put in a canon. When you realize that his post painterly abstraction or color field um, canon is bracketed by two women, Frankenthaler and Truitt, it's really a little bit about maybe we're only we, we have to rethink um, the canon production that Greenberg made. Um, now, look, at, look through this doorway, and you'll see the 
entry into the gallery of Rosenberg's anxious objects. And it begins with Stein, uh, Sol Steinberg's collection. Stol Steinberg was very, very close, who we know is an illustrator, an artist, and um, uh, a painter, but he was always recognized as much more than an illustrator, as someone who was an artist who took great ideas and put them on paper um, in... Um, wonderfully um, wacky ways. Um, and this was my contrast with that beautiful, flat, color field painting. What could be a bigger contrast than a painting that not only mocks the white gallery cube um, that one began to fa find in modernist museums, but one that um, also played with infinite perspectival recession that goes back to the Renaissance. I mean, it's all very tongue-in-cheek, um, which is, of course, something Greenberg wouldn't have liked, but Rosenberg adored. Um, Steinberg's riff, um, um, in any event, the artist's play with Renaissance perspective countered the purity and flatness of the modernist picture plane we've just seen in the Greenberg's um, color field painting. Even humor in art was anti-Greenberg. Um, but this attitude towards art making was precisely the kind of trope that Rosenberg heartily approved of. In the wake of abstract expressionism, Rosenberg contended with many different practices and movements that developed from the mid-1950s to the mid-1970s. The artwork for Rosenberg became, and we call this gallery, the anxious object. Um, and it ex exalted... Um, or he believed, Rosenberg did, that the art object is, existed in a kind of limbo, insecure about its own identity. As opposed to Greenberg's tight focus and teleology of a continuing visual refinement, Rosenberg considered a wide array of artistic practices in the continued debate about art's validity and meaning. And Rosenberg explored artistic diversity in the 1960s and 70s as art critic chief art critic for The New Yorker. Um, Rosenberg loved the pure tactile um, paint application on canvas, and artists like, um, de, from de Kooning on, were called 10th Street paint, painters, painters who really applied um, ab, abstractly paint in a very tactile manner with a loaded brush. Um, he liked the brushstroke gesture and the drip. And this recurs in a number of the artists in this gallery, including this wonderful Joan Mitchell from, I think, one of Joan Mitchell's best years, 1957. And both Greenberg and Rosenberg hated pop art, but Rosenberg really liked um, Klaus Oldenburg's handmade, hand-painted pop art. Um, they were still very visceral, very touchy, and they made you engage your body in appreciating them, such as the funeral heart. Um, Rosenberg was able to voice problems with an artistic approach, but it, um, in extended critiques, such as his major 1962 article on Jasper Johns, he ended up um, greatly admiring Johns, um, to call it a bravura, um, painting, given John's medium, is a 
contradiction in terms, but one that um, Rosenberg would probably have loved. Peter Saul appealed to Rosenberg for the fierceness of his depictions, his social critique, as well as the near-pornographic elements um, in his paintings. But it was, above all, um, Philip Guston's late work, um, for which Rosenberg was incredibly prescient. Guston... um, had a show at the Jewish Museum in 1966. All the work was abstract. It was, um, from what I see in the catalog and the installation photographs, a very, very beautiful show. But Guston stopped painting for two years, and he just drew, and he wanted to go somewhere else in his career. And all of a sudden, figural images started to creep in. Um, And he started to make a group of these figural paintings for which he's very well known and they're very beloved today um, that were shown at the Marlboro Gallery in 1970. People walked out of that um, opening and stopped um, talking about artists, critics, other dealers, um, curators, and stopped talking to Guston. He had um, violated a sacred tenant of abstract expressionism, which was to remain abstract, to not have imagery, to not be comic. Now, these works are nowhere near pop art, but they're very visceral, very touching, very unnerving. Um, And what Rosenberg did, and he was probably one of the few, perhaps the only person who defended Guston, is he he wrote about Guston, these late paintings, but he also sat with Guston at panels along the whole eastern seaboard of the United States, defending Guston's um, return to figuration and explaining the political and personal implications of these new works. And they had great um, personal implications. These were all about um, the Holocaust, his brother who had... um, had his legs crushed in a, a, a terrible accident. So they're, they're not images that come out of thin air. They're images that come out of Guston's experience. Now, action abstraction could have easily ended here with, two installation, um, with the two installations, post-painterly abstraction on the one hand and um, anxious objects on the other. But um, I felt the need for a coda because... Greenberg and Rosenberg's theories were so entrenched in American um, artistic dialogue that um, there were artists that started to play with the ideas um, and maybe turn them upside down or take them to their farthest, um, farthest in in a far direction from them. So one of the works... Um, Frank Stella, we know, was very close to Greenberg, even as a student at Princeton. He was the only undergraduate who was allowed to attend um, Greenberg's Gauss lectures at um, Princeton while an undergraduate. He totally absorbed um, Greenberg's theories and preferences and had... um, really was treated as an adult by Greenberg. And, of course, when he created the black paintings that are now so um, such icons of um, abstract expressionist painting moving 
right to minimalism, um, they violated all the tenets of Greenberg's um, likes, especially his opticality. While they maintained a certain kind of flatness, they were too decorative, and they didn't deal with the the opticality issue, the issue of the way color is applied to the canvas. Um, So they accepted part of Greenberg's tenets and violated others. Um, And Greenberg stayed away from uh, Frank Stella um, for most of the rest of his career. The final work, which was a sort of send-off to Rosenberg that we included, was Alan Capro's work, which is entirely built on Rosenberg's idea of action. Um, In 1957, Alan Capro a young artist, wrote an article applying Rosenberg's notion of action to Jackson Pollock, and especially the photographs and films by Hans Namath that show Pollock in action. And so it was he that set in stone the um, idea that Pollock is really the action painter, even though Rosenberg would uh, vehemently argue against that. Um, So we ended reinventing or having reinvented by Martha Rosler um, one of Capro's early environments, this environment of 1962 called Words, which we thought was um, an appropriate subject for an exhibition focusing on two wordsmiths. Here the artist presents the viewers with a multitude of terms, and these um, reinvented by Martha Rosler had a whole host of neologisms that kept changing in the different venues as new words became invented for political and social reasons. And Rosler made us see that, oh my God, that word didn't exist six months ago when when her installation was at the Jewish Museum, but all of a sudden in St. Louis we had new words that came out of the presses. Um, uh, and it also brought the show to now because it engaged a contemporary artist in remaking this um, early and very important work by Capra, whose career is just beginning to be reevaluated. Ultimately, Greenberg's focus on formal issues and Rosenberg's idea of artistic actions influenced many different paths in contemporary art, including minimalism and performance, neo-expressionism and installation art, even if they would violently object to their associations with those movements. Um, Greenberg and Rosenberg laid the groundwork for many subsequent artistic avenues and expanding um, critical discourses and sadly, were also dead ends for others. Nevertheless, the Greenberg-Rosenberg dyad demonstrate the necessity for continuing dialogue among artists, critics, and the public. Thanks very much. And I think I have a... I think we still have 10 or 15 minutes we uh, do, for we do. any questions. Yeah, and if people don't mind putting their hands up. If, can, can you just Sorry, wait? I've Sorry, got a, we've got a, a microphone, microphone coming. I love 3Ds. 
Uh, one aspect of your talk, in fact, the whole abstract expressionism movement uh, that uh, interests me greatly is the, the, the strong Jewish component. Why don't you give us more details of the history of the Jewish Museum itself uh, uh, with the abstract expressionism movement? Um, I, in fact, I, I, this would be in... Um, a topic, and, you, and you're very right, a topic for a whole book, but the Jewish Museum really entered the... It, it did enter the fray into contemporary art in the late 50s with the work of one um, Jewish abstract expressionist, Adolf Gottlieb, was a 1957 show. The next show was Leo Steinberg's... Um, second-generation abstract expressionism. Um, and that was really the moment the Jewish Museum jumped into the contemporary bandwagon, abstract expressionism as a pure, clean means of, or a style of endeavor, was waning. And the Jewish Museum's um, best-known um, exhibitions were more of the neo-Dada artists like Rauschenberg and Johns and the famous, um, uh, re remarkable um, primary structures, which was the, beginning, the first discourse about minimal art. Um, and, uh, and then also dealt with other, move, uh, other movements, other artists. There was an Eve Clash show um, in at the Jewish Museum. There was a show of European modern painters um, and a show of software, which was really quite advanced in 1970 or 71. So I'm not sure the Jewish Museum played as big a role um, in the emergence of abstract expressionism, say that that MoMA did. Yes. One of the things that's striking about your talk is that is the way that it depicts an era when there was this tremendous intellectual engagement of ideas, ideas about painting, of ideas about about art generally. And I'm wondering if you have any thought as to why there was that kind of eruption of dialogue, in, of ideas of, about imagery that seems to have passed, but was very characteristic of that period. Uh, re restate the last sentence that the... Uh, I, uh, was, was something very with imagery. Very, very characteristic. The dialogue, the discussion, was as much a part of the era as the image making. And I'm wondering if you can... Have any thoughts as to why that occurred? Well, I certainly mentioned that um, Hiroshima and the Holocaust and World War II were game changers. So on the one hand, you had a major world war which left Europe devastated, which brought... Um, surrealist artists to New York to bring new ideas to American art, and they were highly influential um, on the American art scene. Um, and the 
I, I think it's always important to remember that with the global, we talk about the global art world today, where there are thousands, tens of thousands of artists practicing and showing at any one given time in Shanghai, Tokyo, Abu Dhabi, um, Paris, Warsaw, um, Moscow, etc., that the art world was relatively small and the discourse could be contained. And so I think what it does is it made a thicker gravy that was a thicker local gravy. And you really felt that you could separate, I mean, the whole idea that you felt you could separate American art from what was going on elsewhere. Um, and that there was this big defense of American art, and even, um, as with the show upstairs, that this art was not just created in America, but it was created in one city in America that had just begun to assume um, prominence on the world stage in many different way, ways, culturally, artistically, economically, and even politically. Um, so I think it's, it, it's easier to have that kind of focused discussion. And also, for me, it was interesting to see what happens when that discussion gets so distilled around these two voices that were clearly the two major voices of the period. I mean, there were certainly other people writing, but not as consistently and prolifically um, as than as Greenberg and Rosenberg. So I hope that begins to address your question, which is really a gigantic <laughs> question. Yes. Yes. Okay. I think. I, yeah. Okay. And I shouldn't ignore this side. <laughs> no. Thank you. Um, how do you compare? You know, we have two cataclysms in the world: World War One, which produced Dada and anti-art, as it were and World War II and all that came with it that produced a much more, if you will, positive form of art. How, how do you compare those two situations? Um, I, I think each one of those um, wars, since we're just talking about the wars, um, Produced, I mean, yes, there was a direct connection. Dada what emerged in, we always claim it emerged in other places too, but in Zurich and Café Voltaire, um, because there were a number of artists that were evading the drafts in their own countries that were flocking to Zurich, which was a neutral country, to make art. And um, much more positive, I'm not sure that, Dada couldn't be seen as a, as a kind of a necessary unmasking of um, the stakes in the world um, and, and, the, and these issues that seemed so of such paramount importance, um, taking a, making us question the very nature of the work of art um, is one rea I think there are two different reactions, and I think you have something very interesting there. But whereas 
the abstract expressionists were trying to um, get at an emotional um, center, get emotionally centered, use art almost in a therapeutic way. And, and that is not something I necessarily want to be quoted for, but um, <laughs> there, there, were, there were different needs. But the cataclysm of World War II, the cataclysms of World War II were just unbelievably more devastating than World War I because Europe got, did get back on its feet um, much faster after World War I than it did after World War II. Thank you. I did see your show in New York, and I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you. But I was taken by a photograph that you had on exhibit, and I made a note of it on my iPhone. It was from Life magazine in 48, and it was called A Life Roundtable on Modern Art. Can you tell us something about that roundtable, what they discussed, and what their opinions were? Um, I think that kind of notion that you could have a round table with about 14 people at the table and discuss the urgent issues of modern art goes back to the question of the, the man in the um, last row um, posed before that, that one could imagine, what was there, about 14 or 20 people at most around a round table, and it was Alfred Barr and James Johnson Sweeney, and um, probably Leo Steinberg was part of that. I did read um, the um, archival drafts of, of some of that. Um, they were also paving the way for abstract expressionism, even though... Um, Alfred Barr was much more, who was still the big tastemaker at the Museum of Modern Art, was much quicker to, to um, jump on the bandwagon of the neo-Dada artists like Rauschenberg and Johns than he was um, towards the abstract expressionist painters. So I, I don't remember everything that was said, but um, it, I, I'm, I think you could probably go online and find it today. It's me. <laughs> I love the Jewish Museum. I'm never in New York without going there. And I can, I, um, can you do an advertisement for us? Please? <laughs> I would. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. <laughs> Could you say something about Greenberg's influence on Canadian painting? That's also, everyone is asking these topics that need about a book-length <laughs> answer, but, you know, um, Greenberg was, I, and I was thinking about that precisely today. I, it, it hadn't occurred to me how much, in, how my coming to Toronto um, and talking about Greenberg and Rosenberg has a totally different valence in a city where, a city and a country where Greenberg's um, theories probably reigned um, or were more, much more influential and where he was a presence, in, certainly in Toronto and in the prairie states. Um, Saskatchewan 
I think, am I correct? Yes. He he was out there at the school a great deal. And he wrote a lot about Canadian painting. Um, But, and so I think Greenberg certainly introduced a lot of color field to Canada um, because by the time, when he was coming here, he was already um, really focused in on color field or what he called post-painterly abstraction. Um, And... Um, probably left the influence of that taste because he was a very eloquent arguer of what was good taste or not. And, you know, I I know from past um, viewings in in museums in Canada, including this this very museum, that the Art Gallery of Ontario has a great collection of color field works, in large measure due to the presence and influence of Clement Greenberg and a number of collectors and dealers here who um, sought, who talked to Greenberg and sought his advice. It is actually half past. Um, do we want one more question or shall we stop now? And this gentleman here had his hand up first, so one more question. Uh, hello, um, I'm from South Africa, and in 1976, I had a boss who basically used to go around giving a lecture, modern art, is it art or a communist plot? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now that 1976? Sounds, yes, okay. um, and I'm just wondering if maybe in the 1950s there were some similar opinions in the U.S., and how vocal were they? Um, I alluded... Um, to this um, issue um, in my preamble to my conversation. And um, the discussions in the 1970s began by an examination of some of the documents of how... um, Well, I first need to... Is it a communist plot... We, 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 engaged, we engaged this in the Jewish Museum exhibition where we had quotes from different people like Harry Truman, who thought abstract expressionism looked like scrambled eggs, and um, Congressman George Dondero, who actually felt that this was a communist plot. And that was in the early 50s, um, during the height of the Cold War. By the late 50s, Abstract Expressionism was sent around the world, maybe not to South Africa, but certainly what was thought of as the world at the time, um, to um, Western Europe, Spain, Italy, France, Germany, England, as an expression of the freedom that's present in, in the United States. Um, so it morphed from being a communist plot to being the support for capitalism and democracy um, within less than six years. Um, so I, I, I always find that funny, that like Greenberg and Rosenberg, you can write the script around art that you want to make it. What, what is interesting, I think it was in the 1980s, Greenberg did visit South Africa, 
And I remember reading his letters um, of his experience there, and he was very warmly embraced um, as this, you know, hero of American art criticism um, coming to South Africa and, you know, obviously leaving his lessons for South African artists. I think at this point I would like to thank you very much for what has been an excellent talk. And it's, it's only good that... Thank you again very much for your attention. I just want to say it's a really good sign when the quest, there are still questions. So I'm sure if anybody has one that they will die if they don't hear the answer to, you wouldn't mind answering. <laughs> But thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.